This morning, I'm going to juxtapose two different prayers. The prayer that we just prayed uh, and a prayer that we made up. Um, and basically what those two prayers are, I think they are the most influential prayers in the world. And I think on an evangelical level, they have completely shaped the way that we view prayer uh, and we view what prayer can actually do. And as a result, it actually shapes the way we think about God. Uh, we've been saying this over and over again in this series, but the way we talk to God shapes our ideas about God. Uh, and that has never been more true than when we look at the Lord's Prayer and we actually go through that line by line. When we do that, when we go to the Our Father and we realize all of the nuance and the craziness that's in that tiny little 38-word prayer, we can see a God that, that actually believes in prayer. This is God teaching us to pray, actually believes in a God that cares for us, actually believes in a God that cares for us, plural, not just me and my own personal salvation, but for the entire world. And there's just a tremendous amount of love just in that one line. But I think all too often in church, especially in American church, we kind of dumb prayer down to the idea of like thoughts and prayers. You're like in the news cycle and in everything, whenever something tragic like this happens, it's always thoughts and prayers. And I do not know how we got to the point where we lumped the two of those together. Thoughts are so much different than prayers. They are not the same thing. And when we combine them in our brains, what we're doing is we're dumbing them down to the level of just thought. When, when prayer is this beautiful magnetic force that actually changes the world, thoughts don't really do that. Prayer does. I, my family went through all sorts of crazy times uh, in 2018 and just tragic moments. And it, those are on podcasts. You can listen to them. I'm not going to bring them up here again. Um, but the point is there were so many people uh, that came around us and just, you know, told us we're praying for you, we're praying for you, we're praying for you. And that was just like such a beautiful thing. And for me, as a pastor and someone who truly believes this as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, that's a tremendous thing to hear. But the truth is, when you're in the midst of something terrible and someone simply says, hey, you know, we've been praying for you, one, that's comforting, but two, there's almost an element of like, Okay, cool. Like, <laughs> what does that mean? Like, like what are, you, are you literally going into a prayer closet and like thinking and meditating on our situation? Or is it just like a passing thing? Are you doing that at mealtimes? What does it mean to actually pray for someone? What does it mean when someone says, hey, I'm praying for you? What's, what's, what's behind those words? Because it's honestly so vague. And I'll be honest and I'll cop to this. As your pastor, I have said that before and it has not been true. <laughs> Right? I'm praying for you. Oh, we're praying for you guys. Not really. I can do a quick one right, right after you go here. God, please help me. Do <laughs> so I'm not lying, right? But the truth is we just flippantly kind of throw out that phrase. We've been talking a lot about the fact that the only thing you need to do in prayer is to be present with God. And I think that is true universally. I think that is true when we are praying for others as well. There is a, there's the idea of presence that has to be there for prayer to truly be powerful and effective. And by presence, I don't mean you need to go and you need to hang out with them constantly. What I mean is a simple text message that says, I'm praying for you about blank. The most powerful times people came to us and said, we're praying for you, it was always with a specific thing in mind. It was a, hey, yesterday, I prayed for you because I thought you guys were probably triggered by this one instance, or I thought, you know, I was thinking of you guys because I saw this. There's something so crazy in the specific that unlocks our hearts. 
And if you look at like the, the Lord's Prayer, that thing is just chock full of specifics. Our daily bread, bread is mentioned in there. Our father, our relationship is mentioned in there. There are so many specifics to unpack in there. And it's so much bigger than we often give it credit for. I just think a lot of it is not our fault. It's just sort of the thing that we've been handed a lot of times. I think our definition of prayer uh, is weaker than it really should be. And that if we can truly lean into what prayer really, really is, powerful, powerful things can happen, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. And I think that's the most important part that we need to glean from the Our Father is that it's our Father. The Lord's Prayer was actually a prayer that God gave so that we were praying for each other. Our Father. And it doesn't begin my Father. It begins our Father in heaven. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, it's almost a surrendering of ourself and our ego and saying, your kingdom come and not my kingdom come. And leaning into the idea that when we pray, it's a communal act. Did you know back in Jesus' time when he was teaching these disciples how to pray, prayer was a downright communal thing. In fact, there were some Jewish prayers that you weren't even allowed to pray unless a group of 10 Jewish adult males came together, and they called that a minion, which is hilarious if you've ever seen Despicable Me. But you have a minion, a group of 10 Jewish men, and if they were present, they were actually allowed to then pray these specific prayers. You needed a group of people there. And that was hugely intentional. The prayer was supposed to be a communal thing. There were prayers that you did in private, but then there were also prayers that required you to be together to pray them. And I think that's a beautiful picture. I don't think you need to have people around you as you're praying, but there are specific situations in which we really do need to come together to pray and not just do this by ourselves. Because when we withdraw, we withdraw, we withdraw, and we make it about us, 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 or me, 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 more specifically, we're dumbing down the definition of prayer. We're dumbing down the power of what prayer can really do. Mother Teresa has this amazing uh, quote where they asked her, um, as a news reporter, and he asked her, uh, Mother Teresa, when you pray to God, uh, what do you say? And she thought for a minute, uh, as Mother Teresa always seems to do, she got very quiet, and then she said, uh, I, do not, I do not say anything to God, I listen. And then the news reporter sort of taken aback by that, kind of goes, oh, well, wow, well, when you listen, what do you hear God say? And Mother Teresa again pauses, and this must have infuriated the news reporter. She pauses again for a long, long while, and then she says, he doesn't say anything, he listens. <laughs> now that's sort of an infuriating answer, right? But the point is, her version of prayer, the prayer, the, the way in which Mother Teresa prayed, we get a Mother Teresa out of that. We get a person whose beliefs in God and the way that they communicate with God have led or led them to do incredible, crazy things. Because of her view and the way that she communicated with God, where she listened, and there was just this presence there, this, this universal listening, where she just offered up her whole self. Out of that, we get a saint. <laughs> right? So the way that we view prayer really does affect the way that we act in the world and the way that we like literally uh, act with God and think of God. We have two major prayers uh, in modern evangelical Christianity. Um, and I know evangelical is kind of a buzzword right now, but just go with me on this. We're going to unpack a whole bunch of what it means to truly be evangelical and what that truly means in our world. Um, you guys can come in, by the way. I'm sorry. If you want to just make your way through, it's fine. We'll all stare at you, but don't worry about it. Um, uh, 
Basically, our two models of prayer are this. We have something um, called the sinner's prayer. Has anybody heard of the sinner's prayer? Likely, if you went through any kind of children's ministry as a child, or if you've been around the church world long enough, especially in an American context, you have prayed the sinner's prayer. And the sinner's prayer is a very, very beautiful prayer. And before I get to it, I need to tell you a story about how that prayer came into my life. Um, my parents, uh, my, my father is from Savannah, Georgia, uh, and he was the son of an alcoholic truck driver, which those two, how he did that for 20 years, I don't know. Those two generally don't mix. Um, but he was the son of an alcoholic truck driver, very poor, lower middle class. Um, that he had five siblings. They all lived in a two-bedroom home. Uh, and he came out of this, uh, he was the youngest, so by the time you get to like, like young little David, his closest sibling is 10 years older than him. Uh, so he was just basically a forgotten child. A lot of times he would just get like, sort of shoved aside uh, to my, his, my great-grandmother's house. My great-grandmother was known as Big Mama. She was a very large woman, and she would feed my dad all sorts of crazy southern foods, uh, which he used to think was just chicken. He would ask, what is this? And she would reply, oh, that's just chicken. He found out later in life he was eating squirrels, he was eating alligators, he was eating everything that grandpa would go out and shoot, and then he would come back with it. So that's a picture of my father's upbringing. And then you have my mother. Uh, my mother is from a very waspy family in New England. Um, when she was growing up, she grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, and then Ridgewood, New Jersey. Uh, her parents are fabulously wealthy and rich, all due to this one weird fact. My grandfather was working for the American Canning Company uh, in the 1950s, uh, right when plastics were really coming into like the fray. Like plastics were the new hot thing, and canning was not really embracing the plastic thing because what's their business? Canning. Uh, so my grandfather, rather enterprising young man, comes up with an idea and he takes it to them and he says, hey, I have this idea that if you make a can out of plastic, then you could put an opening at the top and you could literally squeeze something out of it. They said, that's ridiculous, that sounds so dumb. So then he went to Heinz and he pitched the very same idea and now we have the squeeze bottle. <laughs> he owns a piece of that. So like translation, he did, he did thousands of other things. He was like a brilliant engineer and he actually designed all of the roads in and out of the Dallas airport, which if you've ever been to the Dallas airport, it's like an engineering feat. Uh, but all anybody ever wants to talk about is the squeeze bottle. <laughs> so can you imagine like being an engineer and having like that kind of prowess and then in every conversation they're like, but wait, 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 you figured out the squeeze bottle? And you know, like he hates it. So anyway. Uh, that leads my mom to get this really kind of wealthy upbringing. Uh, she goes to private schools. She's in all the best programs. Uh, she was a dancer. She, she was in music programs. Um, she was an artist. Uh, but really her path was she got a nearly perfect score on her SATs, which was unheard of back then. And she wasn't even really tutored that well. She just was a very, very book smart person. Common sense wise, if she's driving, like you would never believe that she got a, <laughs> a near perfect score on her SATs, but this is her. She really is brilliant deep down. Uh, and so she went to Brown, uh, Ivy League school, uh, and she was on path to go to medical school right after that, uh, when this little um, group came around in both of my parents' lives. My dad was at a school called Georgia Southern, which if you haven't heard of Georgia Southern, that's because it's Georgia Southern. Anyway, he was at Georgia Southern, and my mom was at Brown, and both of them encountered the same group on their campus, and that was a group called Campus Crusade. Now, Campus Crusade is in desperate need of a rebrand. They call themselves Crew now, because that old Crusade thing, like they should have lost that a whole long time ago. But at that point, that was okay. So they both encounter Campus Crusade. Both are not believers. 
Both did not come from a religious background. My mom was loosely raised Catholic. So basically, they both encountered this, this Jesus through these Campus Crusade people who took them what, what, through what's called the four spiritual laws. Has anybody heard of the four spiritual laws? All right, you've been in church a while. So the four spiritual laws uh, were written by a guy named Bill Bright, uh, and Bill Bright started Campus Crusade, and basically it was an evangelism tool to share the gospel with people, and you would take them through these four uh, spiritual laws, and at the end, you'd pray this prayer. And my parents both prayed this prayer, uh, and then they went on a Campus Crusade beach uh, summer thing, and they met each other, uh, and much to my grandparents' chagrin, they are now married and have been married for 30 years. Um, but they both prayed this prayer, and, and this is the prayer. It's the sinner's prayer at the end of the four spiritual laws. Lord Jesus, I want to know you personally. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior. And Lord, thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. So at age five, I too prayed this prayer in a little bunk bed on a Halloween night and accepted uh, Jesus into my heart. Now, what I'm about to do uh, is going to be disruptive, but we're not going to leave it there, okay? So we're going to deconstruct just a little bit, but we're going to reconstruct because any idiot can tear down a barn, but it takes someone very caring to build one back up again. This prayer is, is almost in juxtaposition if you look at it structurally to the Lord's Prayer. And, and what's, what, what's beautiful about this prayer is it's so, so needed and especially at the time in history that it was needed. In the 60s and the 70s, what happened in the evangelical world uh, is this thing called the Jesus Movement. And what happened in the Jesus Movement was all these hippies who were disillusioned with sort of the summer of love and figured out that these drugs wouldn't really take them there, found Jesus and figured out they could get high off Jesus. No, uh, they, they figured out that Jesus was actually the answer to this stuff. And so that's how these Campus Crusade ministries kind of popped up. And the sinner's prayer was this ultimate vehicle to sort of guide people from this life of hippiedom into a life of Christianity. It lined up the whole thing of like, you are a sinner, and so you need God, and so you need, a sal you need salvation, you need a savior, all that kind of stuff, which was wonderfully helpful and still is. So please hear me here. I am not trying to tear down the barn completely. All I'm saying is, if you look at these prayers side by side, what are, we, what are some of the main differences? And the main difference is, in this prayer, there is not a single hour us or we. Our, us, or we. In this prayer, it is an entirely personal thing. And trust me on this, we need that. Everybody personally needs that. The problem is, what we didn't do, and what we need to kind of move the pendulum back to, is the fact that we began to just sort of leave it there. There came this moment in modern Christianity where if you were just, if you just said this prayer and you just said the magic words, then we're cool. Our job is done and we can add you to our tally board, right? You're now in the club. You're on the team. We got you in a sense. But something went out the window and that something was called discipleship. We began to really focus on conversion and we sort of left discipleship behind. We left it at this personal decision to follow Christ and not the follow part. We made it more about the decision and less about the follow part. It's conversion versus discipleship. And it, it's, it's left us in kind of a really funky spot. I read something the other week that shocked me. Uh, and that's, it was on Relevant Magazine. And it was basically, it said, it was a study that was done by the Barna Group. And they figured out, they did a poll of hundreds of millennials. And they figured out that 47% of millennials, and they stated this, 
The, the poll was, are you, do you think that sharing the gospel is a priority? 47% of the millennials didn't even say it wasn't a priority. They said it was offensive and wrong to share the gospel with other people. 47% of the next generation thinks that it is wrong to share the gospel. Is that, and that, that, that went like crazy in my mind because I was raised in this way that you're like, no, you're supposed to be sharing this, you're supposed to be doing that. And 47% of my generation not only thinks it's like not a cool thing to do, but that it is actually offensive to do that. It's offensive to share the gospel. It's offensive to share this prayer with someone. It's offensive because I don't want to push my beliefs on anybody else. I don't want to convert them. I don't want my beliefs to be like, I don't want to mess things up with my beliefs. They have their beliefs and I have my beliefs and that's fine. But the problem is, when we look at the gospel and we look at Jesus' call, he says almost nothing about belief. It's not your beliefs that you're called to be sharing, it's the love of Christ. It's Christ that you're called to be sharing. And we get those very mixed up. We've made it a culture when in reality it was a life-saving entity. It was our relationship with a living God that we sort of put into a culture. We put all sorts of fences around it and rules and regulations that if you adhere to this cultural aspect part, then you're in. But the truth is when we read the Our Father, there isn't that sort of language. In fact, it's a day-to-day -day prayer. The ancient Christians in the early churches, they were just starting, they would pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day as if to say it was just as vital as a meal for their spiritual lives. Once in the morning, once in the middle of the day, and once at the end of the day. It's just that 47% of people don't think it's right to literally share this Jesus thing into the world. And we have to change that. That's dangerous. Because what happens then is it just becomes a cultural identity rather than a thing that we actually live out and we actually go for. The fastest growing churches in the U.S. right now are, uh, are evangelical churches that have a charismatic bent, and this is all Barna Group study as well, and then the third component of that is their fastest growth measure, the thing that they can measure the fastest growth in, is no longer new converts. Rather, it's transfer growth, a term I learned about this week, transfer growth, which means that the fastest growing churches in the U.S. are grabbing people who are already Christians which is another thing that's shocking. So if you're in one of these fastest growing churches, let's just call it Resonate, anyway, uh, one of these fastest growing churches in the US, and you're sitting there with people who have been Christians their entire lives, and they're all around you, and there's a cultural context and a cultural benchmark, and there's all this different stuff, no wonder we're gonna get to a place where 47% of us think it's not okay to share this outside of these walls because we've never actually seen an outsider's life changed by the love of God. We've only seen things from the inside. And as a result, there's an insider-outsider mentality and people who are looking in from the outside and looking at this whole system, I gotta be honest, in a lot of ways, it's not very compelling. <laughs> like, what do you do when you go to church? We sing. What? Like, it's, not, it's just, it's, it's a different sort of thing. Speaking of that, most of our worship songs, I looked up the top 10 uh, worship songs in the U.S. this week, um, and, and all of them were I, me, my, the, like my God, my Lord. There was almost no song that communally uh, brought us together. 
singing our and us. The true kind of like posture of what we're supposed to be doing as we worship and as we pray. The fact is like when Jesus sent us out or when Jesus sent his disciples out, he gave us a model clear as day with how we're supposed to evangelize and what it means to be evangelical. Evangel, evangelical? Evangelical? Someone will get this on the podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll correct it. Basically, that means good news. It means a herald of good news. It means to share good news. Not beliefs. Good news. So when Jesus sends out the 12, he does it this way, and we're going to unpack this. This is where we rebuild. So I apologize for tearing down the barn there. Let's rebuild and let's do this in a loving way. So uh, this is how Jesus send, uh, sends out the 12. This is in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. Pay attention here. Mark has many chapters after this. And Jesus is sending out these disciples sort of near the beginning of the book. So these aren't a people that have it all together and have got all the answers yet. These are just the people that have been following Jesus. And Jesus is going to show them, this is how I want you to share my good news. This is how I want you to like, bring in the kingdom. And he, he does it like this. He said he called for the 12 and sent them out in pairs. So the first thing we see is that he's called for these disciples, these people that have followed him. And when he sends them out, they are never called to do that alone. They're called to do that in pairs. And then it says uh, he gave them the authority over the unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the journey except a walking stick, no bread, no bags, and no money in their belts. He told them to wear sandals, but not to put on two shirts. He said, whatever house you enter, remain there until you leave that place. If a place doesn't welcome you or listen to you uh, as you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a witness against them. They went out and proclaimed that the people uh, should change their hearts and lives. They cast out many demons and they anointed many sick people with olive oil and healed them. So the mission here is they went out and proclaimed that people should change their lives. And the way that they did this was not inviting them into their home. No, the model of evangelicalism that Jesus sets up is that we are not called as Christians to be the host, but rather a good guest. We are actually called to be in the homes of other people. What Jesus is saying is go join their family. Enter into their culture. Enter into their rhythms and live with them. Live with them there. Be a part of that, that family and be a good guest. You see, good news spreads when you are a good guest. When you figure out a model that you are not just inviting people in, but rather you are going out into the world and you are meeting with these people. My roommate um, I used to live with in Hollywood, uh, a guy named Adam, he was in our wedding, he's a great friend of mine. Um, he was always coming up with business ideas, like left and right. He was like 25 when I lived with him. And just, he, he started like a watch company. Uh, he started a couple internet brands. And then he was, he was always helping other people start stuff, but he was just constantly working. If you ever walked through his room, uh, which you had to, uh, in this case, it was a weird setup, but I had to walk through his room every time I needed to use the bathroom, so I was walking through his room a lot. Uh, but if you were walking in his room, he was just like deep in a laptop, just, just coding, going for it, doing everything. Uh, and he came up with this idea and I cannot remember for the life of me what he actually called it, but uh, it was a glasses company. Uh, it was a glasses company in which um, he would send glasses into the home and people could try them on and then they had like a week-long period that they could keep the glasses and then they had to send back the ones that they didn't want and they could buy the ones that they had. Now, does that sound like a model that you all have heard of before? <laughs> That's a company called Warby Parker. Now, Warby Parker 
did this a little bit differently. Uh, and what's interesting is these two companies were actually on a rise at the same time. And, and it was another two letter name thing. They both kind of looked the same and were similar in almost every aspect except for one. Warby Parker did not put a time limit on how long you could keep the glasses for. So you could essentially sit on those glasses for a year if you wanted to. But the most important thing for Warby Parker is we want to be a good guest in your home. So we're going to stay as long as you would like. And then when you would like to send it back, you are more than welcome to do that. The thing that actually freaked people out with Adam's model was that they only had a week to do it. And Adam, if you're listening, I'm very sorry I'm using this as an example. <laughs> uh, but uh, they only had a week to do it. And thus, that company did not take off like Warby Parker did. And I think the lesson there is even in a business model and even in a business approach, learning how to be a better guest than a host is an enormous skill set. Because what it does is it, it captures and captivates the rhythms of everyday life. And it says, hey, yes, I see you. I don't want to change like the rhythms and the culture that you have, what I would like to do is offer this really crazy awesome thing that I have for you. And so I wanna, I wanna just be here as a guest and if you have questions for me, I'm here. If you don't, I'm gone. But think of this in the lives of people that you wanna share Jesus with or you wanna share Christ with. Being a good guest in their lives rather than a good host is an enormously loving thing to do to come lovingly into their lives in a time of tragedy or in a time of joy or anything like that and just to be simply present and say that if you need me, I will be right here. If you ask me questions, I will be right here. So the disciples got sent out and Jesus says, like, don't bring anything along for the journey. Not even a spare shirt. You are to be at the complete mercy of whoever's home that you step into. And that's an uncomfortable thing, right? We get uncomfortable just in social scenarios where we're sitting down for a dinner and we're at a restaurant and at the end they take out the check and everybody kind of does the wallet move and then there's an argument over who's going to actually pay for it and then you end up and you settle and one person does it and then it's just a whole bunch of nicety that doesn't really need to happen but we do it every single time anyway. I think at the heart of all of those arguments is this simple phrase, do not take care of me. Do not take care of me. Because for us, to be taken care of is an immensely uncomfortable thing. We would rather be the people taking care of others. We would rather be the people buying dinner than if someone took care of us because then we're vulnerable. Then we have to surrender and offer up ourselves. And that's an uncomfortable position to be in. But what Jesus is talking about here is that literally you are called to be in that vulnerable position as you share this good news that you're to just offer yourself and to be completely at the mercy of the person that you are sharing this stuff with, to be completely with them. In ancient societies like this, if you were to, went to like it was called entering or uh, welcoming the stranger, and it was a biblical mandate uh, because of the history of Israel. Israel had been a nation that was enslaved. And so in the Bible, God literally says, you are always to welcome the stranger. And so if a stranger came and it knocked on your door, it he or she knocked on your door, uh, you would open up your home and you would literally take them in and that home would become their home and that person would go from being a guest to be basically a family member in a matter of seconds. And the way that they would do that is they would go and they would grab bread 
Bread was a staple of life and humanity, and they would assume that you'd been traveling a long time. So they'd go and they would grab bread, and then they would prepare a meal, and they would invite them to sit down at the table, and when they did that, you were a part of the family. You were a part of the family. And it's in that model that Jesus says, and that is the correct place to share the good news. That is the right time to talk about this kingdom stuff, to bring this stuff up in the world when you are literally family with these people. You're working alongside them and doing all this stuff. Interestingly enough, in Mark, right after this, we have the verse where Jesus feeds 4,000 people. And remember specifically, he said, bring no bread for the journey, just a pair of sandals. Like you are, you are to bring nothing with you, no money, and especially no bread. And the first question is, Jesus is looking out over the 4,000. He says, we should get them something to eat. And the, the disciples look at each other, and they're freaking out about the normal stuff. They're freaking out about money. They basically say, like, that's like a year's worth of pay to pay for these 4,000. There's no way, even if we had the money, that we could go out and we could find enough food for all of these people. And Jesus, in his Jesus ninja way, flips it on his head, and he asks them, how much food do you have? And they reply, a couple of loaves of bread and fish. Now, they were just called to not carry any bread or fish from the journey. And as they've come back, what have they done? They've carried bread and fish for the journey. They didn't let go of their security. They, didn't, they couldn't let go of that idea that I need to take care of me, 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 me. And Jesus' gospel is always for you, 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 us, us, our, we. We have to let go of those kind of personal security things. And I think that the Lord's prayer is literally the best way to do that. It's the best way to reframe our worldview as a shared worldview, as a worldview of us rather than just of I. You know, James, uh, a guy named James, or Johan Harry, didn't think it was that, Johan Harry, did a study. Uh, He's got a a book called Missing the Mark. Uh, And he did a study based on um, this principle of loneliness. And his idea was, I think we're more lonely than we've ever been. But he couldn't really prove it, so he goes out and he does a study and he hires a whole big group to do this. And what they found out uh, is that in the 1980s, there was a study done where they asked uh, a group of American people, if you are in a crisis, how many people do you have, how many close friendships do you have that you could turn to in a time of need and a time of crisis? And in the 1980s, that number was around five people. And they did the same study in the early 2000s, and they found that the most common answer was none. Gone from five to none in just 20 years. Five to none. We have more ways of connecting with each other than ever before. I could hop on my phone right now and call my grandmother. I don't do that. (laughs) Right? We can text people. We can be present in their lives in more ways than we've ever done before. And yet, we're more lonely than we've ever been as a society or more nuclear than we've ever been as a society. And I think the Our Father is a call to break us out of that. So let's just unpack, let's unpack the Lord's Prayer here. First of all, the Lord's Prayer, this is uh, before this in Matthew, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh, Master, teach us how to, how to pray. Teach us how to pray. And that's a very common line. If you were a disciple of a rabbi, and especially an ancient rabbi, each rabbi had what they called a yoke, which was their teaching. And so basically, they would, they would, the job of rabbi and disciple was that the rabbi would teach his disciples that specific yoke, 
and that specific teaching so much so that they would internalize it, they would put on the mind of their teacher. When Paul says put on the mind of Christ in Romans, that's not an original phrase. That was a rabbinical principle. You were to put on the mind of your rabbi, which literally means like get inside this dude's head. See what makes it tick. Be so obsessed with what they're teaching that you literally start thinking like the rabbi. And then, and this is key, the rabbi would then name them and they would get confirmed and they would go out in the world as their own rabbi. The disciple's job was always to become like the rabbi, to become like the master. And so they would teach him how to pray. They would teach him specific prayers. There are hundreds and hundreds of Jewish prayers. Hundreds. There's a blessing for everything from when you're using the bathroom to when you're eating dinner at night. Everything has a blessing. And so you would spend your life memorizing these blessings or creating these blessings or learning these blessings. And so what the disciples are expecting when they ask Jesus a loaded question like teach us how to pray is they're expecting a litany of prayers to be recited. In fact, the book of the Bible that we can look to that has the most instruction about this stuff is the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy has uh, 23,008 words, all to teach us, teach us the rules, the laws, the way to live, all that kind of good stuff. 23,008 words. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus' plan for how to pray, his instruction for living in the world and communicating with God is only 38 words long. Only 38 words. And he uses two of those words on the exact same word, and that word is forgiveness. When Jesus talks about this kingdom, he uses examples like this kingdom is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the tiniest of all seeds. And what's really funny is Jesus was wrong. That is not the tiniest of all seeds. <laughs> there are seeds that are much smaller than a mustard seed, but we'll give him some ancient context in, in a break. Uh, but the smallest of all seeds, the thing about a mustard seed, however, is uh, it's like a weed. So if you plant a mustard seed, you're going to just have a garden of mustard. Like, it, you're, you have no choice. That thing will grow like wildfire. If you've experienced this, if you've ever had a property or been on a property that has bamboo in it, if you plant bamboo, you are never getting rid of bamboo. Like, it just, it sticks there. And the mustard seed is the same kind of way. The idea is that with something so small, this thing is going to catch fire. It's going to grow. It's going to spread. That's what Jesus truly believed about this, was that it was going to be an unstoppable force that's going to start small but end up changing everything. So it's called an eschatological worldview. He literally thought and believed that this world was going to end. So here's a really trippy thought. The only correct way to pray the Our Father, the Hallowed Be Thy Name, is to believe that the world is going to end. And by that, I just mean that everything can and will change. That this is like a mustard seed and that it's powerful enough to change the whole world. That's a belief that Jesus truly had. And so that's the kind of posture we have to take on as we're praying. So let's, just, let's, let's unpack this bad boy. Uh, first of all, go, can we go back to the Lord's Prayer there, Bobby? Sorry. I think it's the first slide, sorry. The very first slide with text on it. Oh, yes, it is. Sorry, my bad, my bad. Ha-ha, it's in it up there. Okay. I'm going to sleep now. Um, pray like this. Okay, so there's 38 words. Uh, our Father in heaven is probably the most important phrase in this entire prayer. You see, right from the beginning, uh, we have our Father. 
which creates a very awkward dynamic if we're truly praying this in a large scale setting. Basically, that means as we pray this prayer, we are admitting that we're all family. We're admitting that as we pray this prayer, we are a part of something larger than ourselves and that we are loved like family. That's what the Our Father, and that's where it starts. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. That's a surrender of our kingdom, our ideas for what we want life in the world to look like, and get, handing that over to God and saying, Father, this is yours. Give us this day our daily bread. And that's very important there. Daily bread. Not give us enormous wealth or give us security or give us everything, but give us exactly what we need for the day. Uh, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, this is a very interesting thing. We always think of this in terms of forgiveness of sins, and it is. Um, but in many languages, including Aramaic, which Jesus spoke, uh, the word for debt and sin are the exact same word. <laughs> debt and sin are the exact same word. So if you have a mortgage, you are living in sin. No, but uh, you, basically, <laughs> debt and sin are, are the same principle in this ancient world. There, there's something that you need repentance for, so you go to the temple, you would offer a sacrifice, you would become clean, right? So this idea of forgive us our debts. Now, even more culturally crazy is the fact that debt was an enormous thing in Jesus' day. People were being triple taxed. These were substantial farmers, which basically means like they had exactly enough to make it through the day, day to day, paycheck to paycheck, day to day to day. And so what, did the, what the people, the ancient hearers of this are hearing is, oh my goodness, like in this kingdom, these debts are going to be forgiven. And that is extremely, extremely good news. I don't have to carry that tension. But then it flips it on the other side and it says, um, uh, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So it's this universal back-to-back sort of picture of forgiveness in which not only are we forgiven, but we are called to forgive others. So what we have here is a family worldview that Jesus is putting in place in which forgiveness is the main priority. A family worldview in which forgiveness is the main priority. And we forget that so, 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 so much. One of the key differences between the sinner's prayer, again, beautiful prayer, the sinner's prayer and this is that it does not lead us to forgive others. It is simply a prayer for us to be forgiven. But in God's worldview, that forgiveness leads to more forgiveness. Because we've experienced such amazing, life-changing forgiveness, we are called to forgive others with that kind of craziness. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Let's pray together. God, I just thank you um, for our time this morning, and I thank you that uh, we have a prayer that includes all of us. Uh, and as we pray this prayer, we join this crazy kingdom, this crazy family uh, of people who are out and people who are in, and that all disappears. Just so thankful for your good news this morning. Amen.